Hey, welcome back to the Anime World Order podcast. This is Daryl Surratt, and we have got for you in the interim between show number 72 and 73, what, you thought you'd get two episodes of Anime World Order, one after the other in the span of two weeks? <laughs> Those were the days. Anyway, what we've got here is an interview we conducted at Otakon 2008 with the self-proclaimed old farts of anime. We've mentioned these guys on con reports in the past as saying like these are the real old school anime fans people always say oh you guys on AWO you know so much about old school stuff no we don't none of us were old enough to see this stuff when it was originally airing on TV just so you know the audio quality on this one is pretty noisy we did not have a empty room that we could record this interview in we more or less just approached them after the panel was over said hey would you like to do an interview and then we went out in the lobby and it was Otakon it was Saturday night it was loud it was noisy we tried to do what we could to alleviate the noise but there may be some parts where it's a little louder it's a little hard to hear what people are saying we only had one mic to pass around to give to them but I think you'll be able to listen to it and these guys are incredibly fascinating unfortunately I was only able to get about an hour or so of recording because I found out that I was running very low on hard disk space. If not for that, I would have just stayed there and talked to him pretty much for the rest of the night. Because I don't know about you guys, but what these guys are saying is infinitely fascinating. So do listen to it. Again, this is not a typical episode of Anime World Order. This is one of our many interviews that we conducted at this convention. To hear the regular episodes of Anime World Order, head on over to www.animeworldorder.com, where we're getting set on hitting our three-year anniversary of anime podcasting. You can download all the previous shows from there. Let us know what you think about this episode. You can either leave us comments on the website or send us emails at animeworldorder at gmail.com. As for other podcast-related stuff, in the very near future, I'll probably be on an episode of Destroy All Podcasts DX, talking about Macross Frontier, and then I'll probably be on Wild Arms Heroes Mistakes of Youth Podcast, also talking about Macross Frontier. Plus, there's an upcoming episode of The Greatest Movie Ever Podcast, where I will be guest-starring with Paul Chapman, talking about The Greatest Movie Ever. So do check out my guest appearances there. Meanwhile, Gerald and Clarissa are doing real guest appearances. They are going to be at Citicon 2008, October 10th, 11th, and 12th at SUNY IT in Utica, New York. I was going to be there, but I had to drop out because I had a previous engagement. I just found out that previous engagement got canceled. So now I'm not going to Citicon, and I'm not going to the thing I canceled on Citicon for. I'm just going to be here. But do be sure to check out Jared and Clarissa. They are going to have at least a meet and greet. They're probably going to put on some panels. There's going to be some sort of crazy podcast roundtable because there will be several other podcast guests at that place. Head on over to sitacon.com to find out information about all that. Other stuff. At the end of this week is the Providence Anime Conference, October 3rd through 5th, over in Rhode Island. Unfortunately, I can't go there. I mean, I'd love to go there, but I just got back from Anime Week in Atlanta along with Gerald, along with Carissa. Our funds are somewhat depleted at the moment, and so getting a plane ticket plus a time off from work to head on over to Rhode Island is difficult, to say the least. However, if you are going... I do recommend you check out Anime Hell, because Dave Merrill is going to be there, along with a lot of the other people who went to AWA. Neil Nadelman will be there doing Totally Lame Anime. Mike Tool is putting on panels there, probably dubs it Time Forgot, all that good stuff. So hopefully, the Providence Anime Conference will turn out pretty well. It's a first-year con, and it is 21+. plus. But if you'd like to go, if you're kind of reasonably nearby the Rhode Island area, we're out here in Florida, so it's a little tougher, the website for that is ProvidenceAnime.com. 
Anyway, here's the interview, and before anyone makes a comment, yes, I am intensely jealous of Bill Thomas's exceptional vocal command. What is it about you people from Philadelphia with your vocal tenor, jerks? Just for that, I'm putting the theme song to the dub of Toby Kage at the end of this podcast. All right, it is 8.45 p.m. We are here at Otakon 2008, and we are doing a special interview just to review the Anime World Order podcast. I'm Daryl Surratt, and with me are two co-hosts. Hey, this is Gerald Rathkolb. Mike Dent, host of R5 Central. With us from the Old Farts Anime Appreciation Panel. Bill Thomas, run the Philadelphia Animation Society since 1982. Kevin McHenry, part of the Philadelphia Animation Society since 1989. Sydney Whitfield, part of the Animation Society. I can't remember when, but 82, yeah. <laughs> Jim Kapostis, Philadelphia Animation Society. I'm also the first person to edit and show anime music videos since November of 1982. To put things in perspective, what was the first anime title you saw on television? Uh, we're getting some facial expressions of laughter. I vaguely remember Astro Boy back when it first started on NBC, as well as Gigantor, Eighth Man, and of course Speed Racer. I grew up in the 60s era, so I grew up watching Eighth Man, Astro Boy, Birdman, Space Coast, Fantastic Four. That's how I got into anime, and I loved it, as well as the Jerry and Sylvie Anderson shows. I remember mine first with Speed Racer and Gigantor. Theme songs always caught my attention first. Of course, at that time, I had no idea that the Japanese made it. At that age, very good Americans made it. It's on American TV. I remember a um, thing that Channel 17 had called... The We Will We Were Cartoon Club by Bill Weber. And I remember shows like Marine Boy, Astro Boy, Speed Racer, Eighth Man, Prince Planet. They ran them Monday through Friday on Channel 17. At that time period, when it was known as the UHF channels, you used to have to get a converter to put on top of your TV, hook into the TV, turn it to channel three or four, and that's how we picked up 17, 29, and 48. Now, I remember the day we had gotten the converter, had turned on channel 48, and that's when I saw Kevin the White Lion, and they were advertising a new show called Gigantor. And also, when I was in high school, I remember a guy in my classroom came in talking about the damnedest show, Eighth Man. And everybody was laughing at him. And when I listened to what he was talking about, I said, this sounds interesting. Finally saw Eighth Man and said, yes, this show is something else. I pretty much grew up with what everyone else mentioned. I vaguely remember Eighth Man, especially one line that stuck in my mind involving a kidnapping. The criminal is sitting there going, see how I mix and I mix, as he's about to put someone into cement. Along with all those classics, I also remember the Jerry Anderson shows like Thunderbirds and, of course, Captain Scarlet. How long after when you saw these shows did you realize that the shows were actually Japanese? I can easily say my first indication on it was watching Eighth Man, they would always have scenes where cop cars are driving by, the same buildings, and I noticed, wait a minute, those signs aren't in English, it's in another language. And of course, later on with shows like Speed Racer, you would see all this violence. People would get shot or killed, and then later on with Battle of the Planets, they would start becoming robots. And of course, with Star Blazers, it's like, send out the robot battalions. And for me, it was having seen a lot of the Godzilla films. I mean, you're watching an episode of Eighth Man, you see what looks like Tokyo Tower. When they board the train, you know it's the Shinkansen and not Amtrak. The design and certain looks is like, okay, we're not doing this. The Canadian's not doing this. And there's only one place that was doing it, Japan. My first idea that it would be Japanese when I saw the 
real bastardized copy of Nasca, Warriors of the Wind, and I actually started to read the credits. Going, wait a minute, after the American voice actors, all these names are in a totally different language. They're all Japanese names. But it looks so much like the stuff when I saw as a kid, the big eyes, the way they moved, talked, and everything. So I went back and did a little research. It's like, wow, it's always been the Japanese that did most of the animation. The exceptional Warner Brothers. And, you know, certain things and King Features. Yeah, what caught my attention about Japanese show was the storylines and the characters. I'm like, wow, these some really interesting characters. Like with Prince Planet, here go a uh, prince from another world coming to Earth for the Federation to see where Earth be able to join their Federation. And he stayed on Earth for a whole year and had all these different adventures. It was really wild. And Astro Boy, which were really great and fun to watch because it was like a lot of action. And some of the stories were sad, but hey, life got it ups and downs. And that was like the Japanese cartoons had. Life was up and down. Sometimes the good guys know, sometimes good guys lose. And that was it. Made in Japan, but never here. Johnny Cypher Dimensions. Yeah. It's a show called Johnny Cypher Dimension Zero. It's in a TMS art book. It has drawings of it. It seemed like it was made in Japan, but I don't believe it was ever aired on TV over there. But it came over here. It was pretty popular. Ran like about 66 episodes or so. But it was really well done. I kind of liked it. Only to find out it was done by Joseph Orlo, which is the gentleman I believe it was one of the men to help create Casper the Friendly Ghost. In fact, just found out... Orlo did the American opening, the Eighth Man, the English opening. The song. Along with those shows, one of the things that stuck in my mind and eventually led to me doing anime videos was Star Blazers, which I remember seeing, well, not really advertised, always talked about in Famous Monsters of Filmland magazine. They would always have these photos of this ship where... The version that they were talking about, you had people like Shane O'Toole fighting the Gorgon Empire, which was the Gamelons. To put things in perspective for many of our listeners, back when you were first starting to watch anime and you wanted to find out more, you mentioned that you did research on your own. In that time, there was no internet, there was no Google. Could you tell us a little bit about what steps a person had to take in order to research information on discovering what this title was, who made it, where did it come from, and that sort of thing. Well, it was two things. Most of us belonged to a group called the Cartoon Fantasy Organization, CFO. That's where we started. They were out in land-based out in California, so a lot of their members were either getting the stuff from Japan and or Hawaii, and also at the same time, in the New York, New Jersey, and the California, Japanese bookstores were popping up. So if I got a book on Yamato or Ultraman, we used to go in and give them the catalog number of the book, and they would order the book. A couple of weeks later, we'd go up there and they'd get the books for us. Or they'd go in and they had, like, anime, uh, other anime books and everything. It was fantastic. Also, with the CFO, they were also selling uh, books called Roman albums. So we'd also get these nice Roman album books, like one on Eighth Man, Grandizer, Daimos, Zambot 3, all these neat books that were available. One little overlooked thought. You could also look up old TV guides had a cousin who collected them. Luckily, I was able to check some of them, and they would actually have short descriptions and sometimes list the major writer, producer, actor in these short descriptions. And sometimes they'd even have a longer article and a connection. That was one way to look. Another one was your library. They kept everything, newspapers, magazines. You'd go into your local library, and if you just look or ask the librarian for old back issues of periodicals, it'd be this whole room of stuff just gathering dust. You could look in there if you really dig hard. Of course, this is all before the Internet. This is what you had to do. 
if you really want to. And then you finally I found out about Japanese bookstores. Go there, like said, find the Roman albums. Of course, that was a big shock and find all these sections in these Japanese bookstores, which is often some nowhere district in New York City, usually close to where the Japanese lived and congregated. Also, it was interesting when you order stuff, it was like you get books. Then you start getting calendars and books on Ultraman. It's like, oh boy, now I finally find out there were more Ultraman. Then you start getting books on Godzilla, books on all the different Godzilla films, Gamera, Majin, and all the other live-action Japanese monsters. It's like, this is what I've been looking for. Then all of a sudden, like Jim was saying, the Anderson shows, Fireball XL5, Stingray, those shows have been very popular on Japanese TV, and you can almost go in any store over there and find tons of toys on that. That was the other thing I've enjoyed, was all those shows. Then another thing with the shows, when you go to conventions and stuff, and you meet different people, and they start talking about stuff. I remember I bought my first Roller album, which was Eighth Man Roller album. It told you out of print. And I was really shocked, because I was like, whoa, Eighth Man. I never knew they made a Roller album. From then on, I started collecting them. Astro Boy, Cyborg 009, Grandizer, but yeah, like dealing with a lot of people and stuff who like to trade stuff and toys. Toys help a whole lot. They, yeah, toys, and believe me, I like to collect them. <laughs> I first discovered things like Roman albums and soundtracks at this comic convention that used to be up and down the East Coast called Creation Comics. I remember back in 78, the first Creation Con I went to, not only did I discover Doctor Who in the small books, but also several people were selling Roman albums and such. Back in 81, I discovered albums when one dealer at a science fiction convention was selling a 1,500 yen album for $30, and it turned out to be an English drama album for Space Cruiser Yamato. One time, I guess he called the dark side of this, was there was a point where there were some people out there who would get the anime magazines, they'd pull out the freebie posters and stickers and sell them separately, and there are a few individuals that would sell photocopies out of the Roman albums. Jim, you also mentioned briefly that you were doing some AMVs, but you're not just any AMV creator. You were saying that you were the first person to actually put music to uh, anime. Can you tell us about how that came about and not the very first one that it was that you worked on? That actually came about in 1982. I was a senior at Fairleigh Dickinson University. And I met at a previous convention, Lunacon, in 1982, one Robert Fenelon. I had shown up in costume as Captain Avatar, complete with the white beard from Star Blazers. And he mentioned, hey, I got these anime tapes, but I don't have a VCR. And I mentioned, hey, I'm only 30 miles away. I drove home, got the VCR, which at the time was large enough to put into a suitcase. Brought it back up. We ended up having a room party, saw anime there, and... He ended up popping back in my life back in August of 1982 when he moved back home from Boston. He had tapes, and I'd look at them. Around November of 82, I had saved up enough money to buy a second VCR, and I remember people were talking about getting VCRs with flying erase heads. That was the big thing then. And I had picked up a Hitachi VT6800, which was a two-piece portable, top-of-the-line unit for 800 bucks. The first music video started off as a bit of an accident. At the time, I was starting to copy some of the tapes I was getting from people and making copies of tapes to try and trade in Japan. At that time, the local PBS station was running The Prisoner, first time since it first aired in the 60s. And the last episode of The Prisoner is an episode called Fallout, 
where the prisoner is finally let go. But before he's let go, him and two other escapees shoot up the village to the tunes of All You Need Is Love. A year earlier at a creation con, I had seen one of the last episodes of season two of Star Blazers, or Space Cruise Yamato, where they invade the Comet Empire. And what shocked me was all of these people are dying. They cut that out in there. And somehow it mixed with the prisoners, so I cut a video of all of the death scenes from Yamato done to all you need is love as a joke. So it really just started out as a joke. When did you start to see it really take off? Well, the first showing of that and a joke video I cut dealing with the Yamato having parking issues with the Enterprise, I first showed it at Philcon 82.1 in Philadelphia, which was in January of 83, right before a showing of Arriva Durchi's Space Cruiser Yamato. Everyone enjoyed it, and I kept experimenting with videos. My third video was to tell the story of Kodai and Yuki done to yesterday, using Be Forever Yamato, and this eventually led to other videos. Mr. Roboto came out of a complaint from someone that, you're doing too many Star Blazers videos, what is it with Star Blazers and Beatles? And at that time, Styx had released Kilroy Was Here, I figured... Okay, the storyline meshes with Char Aznable. Mr. Roboto is hiding behind a mask. Char Aznable is hiding behind a mask. And it worked. At the time, Rob Fenelon and a few other people were putting together with Mike Pinto a Star Blazers video room at Lunacon 83. Back then, if you were a video ops, that basically meant you brought the equipment, you brought the tapes, and you slept with the equipment to make sure that somebody didn't go into the room at night and steal it. I start showing these as fillers, like there would be 10 minutes to go before the next feature. So we'd stick in a music video. Everyone kind of liked it. In fact, one joke at the end of the weekend, somebody came up to me and said, you did those music videos? Have you thought of doing them as a career? which eventually led to me working in video and television. So you turned your fandom hobby into a profession. I salute you for that. For more information on Rob Fenelon, just as a reminder, we did interview him in a previous episode of the show. Uh, my next question for all of you, all of you seem to have mentioned various experiences with going to conventions at one point or another. Can you tell us a little bit about your first convention experience, roughly when it was, and how it differed and was similar to conventions of today? I'll start it off. My first real convention I went to was a Star Trek convention in January of 1976, which not only was it the first convention that they seriously talked about doing Star Trek, the motion picture, but was also the one noted for Ticketron selling out by 20,000 people in a hotel that could only hold like maybe 2,000. All I know is when it got to the point that nobody could move, I snuck out a fire escape and got out of the hotel just as the fire commissioner arrived and shut down the convention. <laughs> I then discovered from that creation cons, which were back then dedicated to comic books, but also I noticed a few dealers selling Japanese animation kits and toys, and occasionally some of that would end up in the film program. In fact, I remember one convention Someone had brought 16-millimeter prints of Mazinger Z, Get a Robo, and Johnny Sacco episodes that they showed in a packed room. And that's more or less my first early convention experiences. It's a whole lot different from what it is now here at Otakon. Let me see. I think my first was, yeah, I think it was a Star Trek convention, buying black and white 8x10s of films from Godzilla, various other Japanese monsters, seeing it. Oh, this stuff is available. And I remember 
I think it was in one of the video rooms, somebody was running Godzilla, and then they had a clip of Ultraman. It's like, well, at least now everybody's knowing about the show. The more I started going to it, I started seeing more and more stuff added. Doctor Who stuff started becoming more available. Then all of a sudden, we used to have a creation con in Philadelphia. In fact, we were having a lot of them. And my first time was I set up a TV and a VCR there. And I ran Japanese anime, classic American anime for the whole day. And I had mob around my table because I'm running, this was what, 1982. In 1982, I'm running tapes of what? The Herculoids, the Fantastic Four, Godzilla, Ultraman, uh, was it Captain Future, Captain Harlock, a lot of the other live action shows. And people saying, I haven't seen this never in years. I have never heard of this stuff. This looks good. Where do I get it? I had a tablet said, if you like what you see, write your name and address down. We're going to start an anime club out of the CFO. Because the CFO, to get a chapter, you had to get about three or four different people that were into this. So we had that, and we had the first meeting in my apartment, which we squeezed in about, felt like about 120 people. And I remember the program we ran. The first program, that first night, even though I had the air conditioning on, we ran Return of Ultraman episode, Captain Future, Cyborg 009, Two episodes of the old classic Herculoids, I think a Mitor cartoon, and everybody walked out of there saying, I like this. And all I did was just go by word of mouth on the phone tree, sort of like. My first was uh, Creation Cons, also up in New York City. At the time, I was collecting comic books, and there's only certain amount of comic books kept in the comic book stores after they originally go on the shelf. So if you missed anything, you had to go find them somewhere else, and a con was the only way to do that. Of course, while you're in the con, there was like they were saying, they were showing stuff, all this anime, American TVs. You could see independent comic book creators who were doing stuff in the manga style before I even knew what that was. And a big one for that is almost the mainstream was First Comics. And they were one of the ones I was trying to collect at the time because most comic book retailers wouldn't carry it or it'd be hit or miss. I remember picking up one issue of a thing called Dynamo Joe. It was like I picked up the third volume, and I was like, wow, this is very interesting. Where am I going to find the first two? They're not carrying it. So I started to talk to a friend of mine who was telling me that they have conventions up in the city, and if you look in the papers, sometimes they advertise for it for a comic convention. So it's like it's about the best bet you've got. So I went up there, and that's where I got even more exposed to anime. Some of the dealers would have it behind a table running, They'd have this little section with just tapes in it, and they were all third, fourth, fifth generation copies of stuff that was off air in Japan. That's where my first one was probably in a lot of conventions that he was at before we knew each other. Probably met each other several times during those years. On a side note, Dynamo Joe was done by a guy in Chicago who ran the Chicago scene. Right. Because I visited him. Mm -hmm. Very nice. He's a, yeah. He was a slobbering anime fan. Oh, yeah, he was. Oh, he it's a it. great story. It's too bad yeah. about first comics. And yeah. he stopped, too. Yeah, he, he just did. stopped. When they went under, he stopped. My first word, the creation con, and then I met Bill. I was one of the people at Bill's table. I was like, whoa, wait a minute, Astro Boy? And he showed uh, Arashi Man. Future Police Arashi Man, yeah. Yeah, I was like, wow, wait a minute, where can I find this stuff? Because this stuff was bringing back memories. And I usually like a comic book reader, but that day, I wasn't even thinking about no comic books because, like, this thing opened up my whole world of like stuff I hadn't seen. Like the live action stuff, like there were more than one Ultraman, which I found out there were other Ultramans like, wow, wait a minute, there are other Ultramans that I didn't know about? 
The rest been history. Two other quick short stories about finding out about anime was in 1980, I went to NorEastCon 2. It was in Boston. I had found out about the CFO because they were running anime in different rooms. I remember this one show called Combo Tiger, which dealt with these five race cars that formed together. Got Tiger. I also saw Lupin the Third Castle Cagliostro there. Fred Patton was running it for TMS and was handing out polls for people to fill in, you know, like... What'd you think of this show? What'd you like? What'd you hate about it? It was subtitled. I came across, I guess this would be my first coming across, Rob Fenelon, was amusing. At PhilCon 81, he was running this thing called the Gamelon Embassy. And I walked in one Saturday night, and they were about to run Be Forever Yamato. But the person who had taped it, a guy by the name of Hiroto Hara? Hiroto, yeah. Hiroto would get these tapes from his parents in Japan. And he mentioned something about, we don't have the end. So there you are, two hours into this movie. The Yamato has finally blown the cover on the Dark Star Empire's homeworld. The Emperor is sitting there saying, Don't move, Yamato. One false move, I'll blow up the Earth. And he turn around and go, Captain, what do we do? All of a sudden, the tape rewound. <laughs> Everyone in the room was ready to kill Rob. And so he's going, Wait, wait, this is how it ended. Apparently they did let Rob live another day. It was a sufficient enough explanation that he gave, so yeah. we're thankful for that. Funny sidelight about Hiroto. Uh, he was an exchange student that lived in Philadelphia. In fact, he lived about up the street from me. We never knew it. So one day I had just come from New York from the toy store, and a big bag sticking out was I had bought the giant $75 Yamato. So I'm walking down the street, and he walks by, and he looks, Ooh, Yamato. And I look at him and said, yeah, Space Cruiser Mount. One conversation ended to another, and it was like, Hiroto was one of these anime fans. He liked live action. He liked the old shows, new stuff. And he was like, oh, I like this. So I invited him over to my house. Next thing I know, he was bringing over tapes, showing us stuff. Let's see, I think his parents lived in uh, Okayama. His parents would send him a lot of tapes. He used to bring over a lot of the manga and books. He would come to our meetings. Hiroto was, uh, it was kind of funny. Roto was Japanese, but there were times we used to ask him, what was that on the screen? And Roto said, I don't know. He was like, but you're Japanese. And Roto said, there's some things I don't understand. But he was a hell of a nice guy. He was like willing to give out all kind of information. I hadn't seen him. I think he had, well, he had to end up going back to Japan because his father was sick. But one of the things, and that kind of like toot my own horn, but when I had joined the CFO back in the early 80s, I didn't know it until it had come out in one of their bulletins. It was more of a California-based group, and then when Fred put it in the bulletin, I didn't know it. I was the first outsider to join. After that, everybody else joined. Because once I had seen, I think I had ordered from Fred the entire manga volume of Eighth Man and Gigano. I said, this is what I've been looking for. This is what I want. And I think he had sent me a Godzilla calendar. I said, these are what I'm looking for. And I said, I think I may have sending $20 again. Here, I want to join. You got exactly what I want. And I used to write down everything, and then the next thing I know, then he says, CFO this and that, and he says, Bill Thomas in Philadelphia was the first person outside of the group to join. And I know it was going to be a part of history. One thing I will admit, my mother was also a big fan of Japanese anime. She liked it. Her favorite show was Space Giants. She loved that show. Space Giants, she liked Ultraman, she liked the Godzilla films. She loved the Anderson shows. Her favorite was UFO. The Hanna-Barbera stuff, she loved Shazam and the Fantastic Four. Spider-Man cartoons she loved because it had neat jazz music and beautiful animation. What else was it? 
The Gamera film she kind of liked. Majin, the giant uh, Shogunato, she loved that. She thought that was really unique. Man, your really mom was unique. awesome. Well, my mom as a kid took me to see Godzilla when it came out. It was like 1954, 56. And then I remember later going to the movie seeing Gigantus the Fire Monster, which I love because that was the first monster versus monster in the city, and they haven't had anything like that since War the Gargantuas. The American release for Godzilla was 55. The Japanese was 54. 54. One year later. Later, one, yeah. One year later. Because that's why you got the American one, it was 85. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the remake. The remake was like 85. Let's see, most of the TV channels, well, in Philadelphia, we used to have something called the early show. The early show was great because every now and then they used to have something called Sci-Fi Week. For five days you had Godzilla, Gigantus, Rodan, and the Mysterians. If you had a color TV, seeing that stuff was beautiful. Oh, what was the other thing? Earth versus the Flying, the Harry House stuff they would run. Nobody does that stuff anymore. Yeah. I remember in New York, Channel 7 would run Monster Week on the 430 movie. In fact, in 94, I cut a music video to Blue Oyster Colts Godzilla, and I listed in the end credits under the producer would like to thank, I listed in there, Monster Week on the 430 movie while growing up. We're at a convention called Otakon, which of course is a conglomeration of otaku and convention. What was your first encounter with the word otaku, and would you consider yourself otaku? My first contact on it was when I went out to Anime Con in 91 and then Anime Expo in 92 when they would put in this word, what is otaku, in their daily bulletin. I couldn't figure out too much what the heck otaku was. From what I could gather, otaku was something along the lines of translated out as fanboy, which could back then be taken as an insult. Let's see, Otaku. When I, I can't remember when I, I think it might have been when I first started coming to Otakon. I just considered myself just an average anime fan. I know what I like. I like what I know. I guess I could say I'm a slobbering fan, but there's a lot of stuff I just enjoy. I enjoy the artwork, the design. Having done, we just did a couple of trips to Japan. You finally get to go there and see all the uh, neat toy stores. In fact, we were there just past year at the uh, International Animation Fair, which is held in March. So you get to meet the people who work on the shows toy dealers and everything else so to me i'm just a fan i just like this stuff it's fun where else can you enjoy a hobby like this and you get to travel to another country that's fun and you meet other fans yeah i think my first exposure to the word otaku was also at anime east it did never even occur to me that they have some kind of separate name and then somebody there told me the origin of the name otaku and i was like really no wonder why they don't like the word <laughs> so actually i consider myself a casual otaku, not rabbit or anything. You know, I have the day job. I don't tell everybody at my day job, you got to watch this, you got to do this, because it really pisses people off when you do that. You might mention it offhand. If they're interested, show them. If they're not interested, let it go. It was just rather shocking to find out what the origin of the word was from the Japanese point of view. And I was just like, no wonder why it kind of annoys them. It's like, you know, associating with Jeffrey Dahmer. <laughs> Well, for the Japanese, oh, it is oh, kind of what it is. Yeah, unfortunately, you know? they've had a few crimes where some of the fans over there have gotten a little too rabid. Well, that's where yeah. the, the word started from, yeah. where the a criminal, yeah. Ooh. It was from a criminal. No relation to Hayao Miyazaki. We're more trying to be an educated fan. Me? Well, I've been coming to Oricon, so when I came to Oricon, like, this is the place for me, because when I seen they would pull stuff out of their vaults, I was like, oh yeah, it's like heaven to me. So <laughs> when I first heard that, 
the word, what you say? A taco? I thought they were talking about a taco, really. You know? Well, I got out with hungry today. <laughs> That's about it. The way I found out about otaku is an amusing story about that. At Anime East 94, I was working on the opening video for that. And a friend of Kevin's, Dave Wyman, came up and said, You know, one of your videos ran at Otakon, which led to two questions. First was, which video? And second, what is Otakon? It turned out, back in 1989, I had edited a music video, Cult of Personality by Living Color, using scenes from Mobile Suit Gundam and the like. Somebody out of the blue did a similar video, although I have yet to see it, and showed it at Otakon's music video contest. So that's how I found out about Otakon. Your first anime, East, Otakon actually had a small room before they even really got started. They were advertising themselves. Of course, they were way off in a corner and nobody saw where the hell they were. You either ran into them by accident or you already knew where they was. I didn't go to the first Otakon, but my mutual friend, Dave Weidman, did go to the first Otakon. He came back and started telling everybody about the con. Then we went to the next one in 95. And then I've been to almost everyone since. I noticed some of you, the first convention that you ended up going to was a Star Trek convention oftentimes. Were you guys fans of Star Trek? Star Trek, Battlestar Galactica, Star Wars. I met a whole bunch of friends over Star Wars and Galactica. It was this informal group called The Bruce. They called themselves that based on one of the Bruce gags out of Monty Python's Flying Circus. <laughs> yeah, I've always been a Trek fan. In fact, I remember the show when it went to its death nail on Friday nights as a kid and enjoyed it. I'm also a big Irwin Allen fan. Just sit me down in front of Voice of Bomb Sea, Time Tunnel, Atlanta. I'm having a ball. Actually, I think we'd call ourselves really sci-fi sci fans. Yeah. Star Trek was an influence. Yeah. I saw it in reruns. I'm not as old as he is to see it when it yeah, first came out. First came which on. that's what really saved yeah. Star Trek was the reruns. Catching people like me on the next go-around. One show that wasn't Japanese, but it was American. I remember my streak got definitely quiet the night the very first episode of The Outer Limits aired, which was the Galaxy Band. And when that show went off, everybody came out and said, good Lord, what kind of show is this? I'll never forget that. Also, we were the same way the first night Johnny Quest came on. That first episode with the laser gun and all that's like, animation has come to be really, really good. Adult animation, it was really good. People were getting actually killed, beaten up. What was that? There was one episode, Race Bannon kissing Jade? Whoa, hey, this is neat. Well, that was interesting. Is Race Bannon killed quite a few the people. people. Yeah. Like when the frogman came over the side of the ship, he stuck a knife yeah. in one of them and sent him back over the side. Yeah. But it's so quick, child really didn't see it. It looked like he punched him. But the scene before, he's holding a knife in that hand. Where'd the knife go? Yeah. <laughs> and that was Friday nights on yeah. ABC when Johnny Quest Yeah. Yep. I mean, all this neat stuff that we saw on TV. The mummy, the, the Anubis. The Anubis, the mummy. That was a very scary episode. We always used to talk about the crawling eye. Yeah, yeah. Very well done show. Yeah, very well done show. Or the one with Toro, the giant pterodactyl that was still alive up in the mountains. That show was well done. The German guy from the grenade. The grenade, yeah. He still was living World War One. It's like, this show was really good. And he got blown up by his own grenade because got stuck in the wing of his plane. Plane, yeah. <laughs> and the thing that struck me is that Johnny Quest was basically like the old movie serials were. Back yeah. from the 30s, the 20s, when you went to the movies to watch all this new content. The episodic stuff was all from that. Johnny Quest was very much in that line. I guess the people who created it, they grew up with that and wanted to recreate that for the new generation on TV. 
I remember in the late 60s, if I aimed my TV antenna towards New York, that was the first time I got exposed to Tintin, and they were like Johnny Quest episodes, and I fell in love with the Tintin stories. Then I started seeing more of the anime, and then I fell in love with the Asterix and Obelix movies, and I said, oh, this is great. The oh. French and the Belgian are doing violent anime. That's funny. They did a live-action Tintin movie. There was a live-action, yeah. I have yeah. Never, yeah. Spielberg is putting one together right now, another live-action Tintin. Really? Yep. In fact, this gentleman here could be a live-action stand-in for Tintin. <laughs> <laughs> I know I do have copies of the older live-action Tintin movies. It's amazing. The characters work. They, the makeup and everything, they did very well in those old movies, considering they were made in the 60s. Right. Yeah. I'm interested to know what it was like for you guys to be there with other Star Trek fans, but you were into this kind of weird other stuff. And I'm interested to know how the other Star Trek fans at the convention reacted to it for the most part. Well... <laughs> Some of it varied. Initially, my friends were curious about anime when I first got involved in it. I also remember for a while in the uh, late 70s at the Creation Con, you had what I considered the first major schism in fandom. You had all the Star Trek fans poo-pooing the Space 1999 fans. Oh, yeah. And don't forget the Doctor Who fans. Star Trek versus Doctor Who. Star Trek versus anything. Whoever wins. We lose. It's like getting into a tacoism, right? The word Trekkie, Trekkie. was an yeah. insult invented by non-Star Trek fans, like Doctor Who fans, Space 1999 fans, to piss them off. Yeah. When you first went to like a creation condom, first thing you saw at the door is a Klingon. He's your security guards. Easy to find security. Look for a Klingon. Yeah. Just amazing. You could actually see they were really responsible for a lot of cosplay, too. I mean, they took their character seriously. Too seriously. Yeah. <laughs> really seriously. Yeah, like, you need help seriously. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's very funny to watch these people gurgle Klingonese. It's like, wow, nice made-up words. Let's go with that one. I don't have any clue what you're saying, son. What are you, directing me to the bathroom or to the lines to meet the actors? <laughs> well, they went and shot and pissed a couple of them off. Oh, yeah. Well, they were, they were yeah. acting like Klingons. What are you doing? <laughs> Can't you speak in a normal word? <laughs> in other words, the Trek fans would take it just a little too, too far. far. We had one Star Trek convention in Philadelphia. It was interesting because we had a dealer. Had a big 16-millimeter screen, and he had a crowd around him. What was he running? Well, he was running clips out of Ray Harryhausen films. It was like, whoa, this is great. And he was running the Max Fleischer Superman cartoons from the 40s, which nobody had seen on TV in years. Then all of a sudden he put on a little bit of Godzilla clips, Gamera, and some Japanese anime. It's like, hey, where are you getting this stuff from? Being up in New York, you probably get it from, what, some movie distributors and whatnot. I remember another convention going to, they were showing clips of a show called Space Giant. He said, this is a show that's trying to be sold in the United States. I got the address to the firm, it used to be Lakeside Television Production, Dobbs Ferry up in New York. They sent me a nice little photo about the show Space Giants about three weeks later, found out Channel 17 had bought it. They sent me a note that says Philadelphia has now bought Space Giants. Then I found out Spectre Man, another live action giant show. Channel, I think it was 48 or 49, 29 it carried it. They had picked it up just after Philadelphia had gotten hold of Gotcha Man, Battle of the Planets, at that same time period. Yeah, we had re-picked up Speed Racer, so it's like the anime boom was starting all over again. Also, another group I belonged to was the Japanese Fantasy Film Journal. 
Greg Shoemaker lived out in Toledo, Ohio. He used to publish a giant fanzine devoted to Japanese live action, monster films. Haven't seen him in a while. He was like a, a godfather of all this stuff, and he was interested in anime. His publications in later years, he was covering every phase of it. What was being done by Toei, all the movies being done by Toho, other studios, anime, live action. So that was also a good outlet. I have met some Trek fans that said, hey, this stuff is not bad. They looked at Yamato. Some Trek fans I met said they did like Captain Harlock. They said that was unique, very different than what they had expected. But the other thing I think a lot of people said they liked about Japanese anime was the villain doesn't always win in the end, and the hero doesn't always win in the end. And then there's some shows that don't have a final episode. The battle keeps going on. I think the last episode of Zone Fighter, there's no final episode between Zone Fighter and the Gargon. Yeah. The last episode, the battle keeps going on. Somebody tells me Machine Blasters, the show has keeps going on in the end because... One of the heroes is related to the villain of the show through childbirth. Or like, what was that show? Voltus 5. At yep. the end, yeah. in the end, you find out those are your brothers. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, Bill, uh, wasn't there, I forget, was it Baldios, where it turned out in the end they were actually responsible for causing the disaster they were trying to stop? Yeah, General Gowder and uh, Marion, yeah. Planet S1. Oh, God, that was a turnaround I couldn't believe. That's a show I've always liked. That's the one where they melted the polar ice caps. You know what's funny about these shows? I know my nephew, like the Power Rangers. So I said, let me show you the real Sentai stuff. And I did this on his birthday where he had all his friends around. I had him sit in front of the TV, my mom, big widescreen TV. I said, now, I'm going to show y'all, because, you know, they were like, Green Ranger. I said, I'm going to show you the episode where Green Ranger actually died. <laughs> Kids were like, huh? My nephew was like, what are you talking about, Uncle Sidney? Green Ranger is like, no, 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 no. I'm going to show you the real stuff. And then I showed them episodes of Jetman. Jetman was the and greatest they were like, And wait a minute. And they were like, yeah, and wait a minute. And they were sitting there looking, and the parents were like, what are you showing our kids? Couple kids start crying like, no, Green Ranger can't be daddy. He's alive. He's alive. And I'm Get like, no, no. I said, I, I, Stabbed out say, of nowhere. I said, let me tell you, these characters do die. They're not Power Rangers. It's Sentai, different Sentai shows. In fact, I even showed them the books I got on all the Sentai shows. So they're the little same thing at Power Rangers. I mean, you can see a disappointment in these kids. Like, oh my, but you know that Power Ranger there. No. Uh, the GP with the GP7 machine car. Yeah. Leopold Die Tardis. Yeah, Spider Man. Oh, what was the other one? The machine. Uh, Mateldar. Yeah, Mateldar, yeah. 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 yeah, I think in the end he, he ends up getting killed. That's from the, um, the yeah. Hero Rescue series. Yeah. No, he was a uh, part, what do you call it? The Toei Metal Heroes. Yeah, the Metal Heroes yeah. Rescue Which series. Some people seem to forget. VR Trooper, what is You've got Jespian, Galveon, all the space marshals are almost like Robocop, almost like Iron Man before. There's the long standing rumor that the guys who were designing the armor for Robocop actually copied design from Gavon. Ah, because I just heard something about they want to revise the Robocop franchise again. Yeah. yeah. And I remember the, the animated series was nice. Yeah. yeah. The old cartoon for Robocop. But yeah, uh, there is going to be a new Robocop made by the gentleman who made Requiem for a Dream and Pi to get back somewhat 
all conversations inevitably lead towards RoboCop. Six degrees of RoboCop. But you mention yourselves as being science fiction fans. Generally, you don't really see much of a distinction between your love for a science fiction story that's animated versus a science fiction story that's live action. It's still just science fiction. Do you think that sentiment has largely been lost as the years have gone by? If you go to a sci-fi con now, they seem to be much more gentlemen around your age, whereas if you go to an anime convention, it's generally teenagers. Do you think that there's a disconnect between the two now that didn't used to exist? During our time, all we had was the sci-fi conventions, which is where anime really got its ball rolling towards the convention. The teenagers now actually are benefiting from that because now they have their own conventions. They're not forced to go to a sci-fi convention to get this stuff, to see this stuff, and meet others who are interested in this stuff. It's not really a division like that. It was bound to separate. Like the Star Trek convention finally separated themselves from a lot of the straight sci-fi because they all got their own conventions. Conventions just started to spring up everywhere. When we started, creation was pretty much it. You dealt with that, but you didn't have it at all. You wanted to go meet others who were interested in what you had. You had Creation for sci-fi and Greenberg for comics, which also had a sideline with anime. Well, it's drawn art. There's a little logic there, but mostly it's because of greed. People found a niche market that would spend big bucks to get this stuff from Japan. I remember spending for my first VHS copy, fifth generation. I spent 50 bucks for this thing for a half-hour episode. (laughs) It was insane, but you wanted it. And it was the only way to get it if you didn't know somebody who could get it for you. That's the way you congregated there. So the kids now are actually benefiting. I think you have Otakon's a big example. This is really dedicated to the Japanese animation art. There's a side now of Hong Kong stuff and live action, but... Yeah, I hate to tell you this, but if you've noticed in Philadelphia, we have lost the international Asian channel. What? You didn't know that? Yeah, so... No more on Sunday nights are we going to see Voodoo's or any Japanese anime. The dummies took it off. I called, called our cable company. Said, oh, that was an executive decision. Gee, thanks. Yeah, so was canceling the original Star Trek. It was an executive, executive decision, yeah. Uh, I don't know how many of your fans noticed the story behind that. The head guy for the network at the time, he was off somewhere on vacation on a leave. Well, he comes back. And the first thing he does is go home and he watches TV. Well, he's looking for his favorite TV show, Gunsmoke. Oh, <laughs> And, of course, Gunsmoke is not on. It's this new show on. It's a sci-fi thing. Well, it's Star Trek. Like a Western. So he goes back into work and goes, where's my show and what the hell is this? <laughs> it was just the editor time that the top had all the power and they made decisions on whatever they liked. Doesn't matter what the ratings say. At the time, the Nielsen's really just getting going. Ratings help. People like Gunsmoke. Put it back in its time slot. To go back a bit, many of you have mentioned reading comic books and going to conventions for that. Could you tell us about your first encounters with manga and what were some of your favorite titles or some of the early titles for manga that you were exposed to? I had come across manga when I had first discovered that you could buy this stuff at Japanese bookstores, courtesy of Rob Fenelon, I'd found two stores that existed in Fort Lee, New Jersey. One was Books and Gifts O'Hara, and another one was called Tokyo Shoten of Fort Lee, which I remember a lot of people complained about because the Japanese guy in there would basically go, no, nothing in here for you, get out. He eventually earned the nickname of Mr. Gaijin Hater. So one day, I walked in there, 
I found anime items. I bought, I paid cash. Eventually, he lightened up Money Talks. And I had found out about manga from a few other people. From Rob, I had found out about this one series called Cosmopolis Justy. And I started picking that up. Ragnarok guy picked up a couple other series. I started collecting Area 88, but after a while, I hit a point where room was beginning to get scarce and why buy this stuff i can't really understand so that's when i first discovered manga of course going in japan you see a lot of manga around and in 2000 you discovered the adult side items that of course you don't see available over here except in the hentai panel after 11. i remember one trip in 2001 i come back from a hard day going around tokyo i lie down I dropped something off the side of the bed. I reached down to get it, and somebody had left this adult-bound manga of all hentai stuff in there. I'm wondering, okay, is this the house copy or somebody hiding their stash? My first time, like I said, after I joined the CFO, was getting the uh, manga for 8th Man. Seen many of the episodes and then see, oh, oh, that's what it was like in a comic book. As well as comics for Gigant or Iron Man 28, the same thing. And then I started getting comics for Mazinger, Grandizer, and having seen the shows, okay, now I see where the basis is at. And then I started discovering pockets of anime in a lot of areas like in Canada, Montreal, because they were running Japanese anime in France. I remember going to a couple of toy stores and seeing Captain Harlock bendable figures, stuff on Astro Boy, Eighth Man, Kim of the White Lion. And it was like, oh, so somebody else is running this. And I started seeing Grandizer in French, Goldorak. Harlock was Albator, Captain Future was Captain Flem. Then when I went over to Europe on vacation, it really increased the interest. It was like, God, they're running a ton of anime, and a lot of the manga that they were selling was in French. What do they know that we don't know? You know, like 3 or 4 or 5 o'clock in the afternoon, their TV's loaded with anime. And I remember, I think it was in Belgium. I was in this nice hotel, drinking a nice Belgian beer. 3.30, here comes Cobra on TV. I said, well, yeah. At the Cobra comes Johnny Quest. Well, at the Cobra, Johnny Quest was 1980s Iron Man 28, and then they were running the first time seeing Inspector Gadget in French, as well as they're running Ulysses 31. It was like, oh, well, this is great. And you go to the stores, and you see, like, I think it was this one toy store I remember in Brussels. Japanese toys everywhere. It's like, all you could see. But you walk in, burn out the credit card, burn out what foreign money you got. Go in and be discreet. What do you want? So I walked in, I saw all these toys, everything I wanted. So I said, okay, let me get the Ulysses 31 ship. Let me get the soundtrack album. Let me get this. Fine. And the guy asked, looked around, and he asked me, he says, are you an anime fan? This is good. I said, yeah. He said, so am I. And we got to talk about anime. And I says, boy, the anime uh, feeling over here in Europe is completely different as it is in the States. Well, that's like I said at the panel, when I went to DIC, they said, we are anime fans. We like anime. Can you actually, for the benefit of our listeners, tell us that story again for when you went to okay, DIC? I had bought the, uh, like I said, I had bought the Ulysses 31 ship, and there was a piece of paper that says, join the Ulysses 31 club, and there was the address in Paris. I said, well, okay, I got plenty of time, I got nothing to lose. Took the train back to Paris, stayed at a hotel, because I've been to Europe before. I said, okay, I know how to ride the subway in Paris. I just wanted to check. I said, where is DIC office? She says, around the corner from Pompidou Center. I said, okay, with all those funnels and things. I walk around there. Like I said, I went into DIC office, walked outside the door. There's a life-size statue of No-No the Robot. On the outside was a life-size statue of Inspector Gadget. Okay, I walk in. Hopefully, I'm not going to get thrown out. I told the lady what I was interested in. and She said, oh, somebody will be here to talk to you. I think the gentleman's name was Max Salinger. He was one of the executive producers of Ulysses 31 and other shows. Took me around, very nice guy, gave me some 35 millimeter slides, 
took me in everybody's office, took me to a room where they were dubbing the show in French and showed me the guys doing the dubbing. Funny thing is, I remember when I walked around the corner, what did I see? A giant Tintin store. I said, oh, God, here we go again. I walked into that store. There was everything you wanted on Tintin, from the big spaceship from Travelers on the Moon to the figures and all the other things. It was like, I can't find none of this stuff back in the States. And when I left DIC, the guy thanked me. He says, oh, if you want any more information, either write us, call us, or come back again. He was like, they were really nice. He said, no, we're anime fans. And like I said, when they showed me everybody's office, mostly everybody's office had toys, models, drawings. I said, gee, these people are normal. He says, like I said, we're anime fans. And he was just really, really nice about it. He said, we liked it. We liked doing this. Oh, there was one thing that was interesting. They had a display table. I was kind of surprised. This one display table on one side had all the toys and merchandising from the Ulysses 31, all the records. I think they said the theme song became like a uh, gold record equivalent because it was like a, a jazz song. Then another table was full of all Inspector Gadget stuff. And he was saying, yeah, this is all the stuff that's been done on these shows. He said, we do get people that are interested. People are interested in anime. I said, well, in the States, the only word of anime you talk about is at Walt Disney. That's all they knew, Walt Disney. They wouldn't mention Tom, Jerry, or Woody Woodpecker or anything. It's got to be Walt Disney. I mean, oh, like Walt Disney. Disney. Oh, Warner Brothers, yeah. So the old uh, stories about you went into Disney and probably get thrown out or collared or uh, <laughs> thrown up against the wall like you in Nazi Germany. I may be exaggerating, but I was just shocked at how friendly DIC was. When they're telling you, come back again and visit. And he told me, he says, there are other anime fans here who work here you could talk to him. I said, oh, but he says, right now, they're in Tokyo at TMS office. And he even asked, he said, oh, I could call one of them for us. No, no, no. Was, boy, you know, he really, really put out the uh, welcome card, and I, I was grateful for that. That was the first time I'd ever visited an office like that. I just wanted to get, uh, if Kevin and Sydney could tell us how they were first exposed to manga. Well, I guess the first exposure to manga really would be with, like, the Dynamo Joes, the American versions of it. So I didn't even know that the Japanese had their own comic books or anything like that. I think I was reading in the letters page in the back of Dynamo Joe, somebody was mentioning some of these other titles from Japan that are similar, like Gundam, which was obviously an influence of this. So when I was at the comic conventions looking for back comics, I, I saw someone had this little box full of these small comic books in it. And one of the, I think the first one I bought was this little comic of Space Cruiser Yamato, because Star Blazers, I remember Star Blazers. It's like, I know that. I know the ship. It's right there on the front. And I think that was the first manga I had ever picked up. Of course, I hadn't a clue what they were saying, but Japanese is a very visual thing for their manga, so you can still get what their story's going on by looking at the pictures. They're very graphic, very storytelling. Well, me, I just recently got into manga. I mean, I used to see it, but it was written in Japanese, so I like... Well, I ain't going to waste my time because I can't read Japanese. But I know the company Dark Horse Comic had translated all the Astro Boy mangas where I had bought. I mean, I bought all of them. Like, okay. Me too. And, and Tokyo Pop, I think it was 11 mangas of Cyborg 009, which it was my top favorite. Way before there was $6 million man, Bionic Woman, Cyborg 009. And I bought the whole, all the mangas and sat there and read all of them and were amazed at, yes, the two heroes of the 0019 do die. And I was like, okay, yeah. <laughs> all right, I guess this goes out to um, Bill and especially Sydney. Sydney, you talked about showing your, uh, on the uh, tapes of the older Sentai shows and whatnot. Uh, have you seen any of the newer stuff these days? And if so, like, what's your opinion of it? 
Well, I seen the new on the internet. I seen the new remake of the Cyborg Zero Zero Nine, and I was impressed because what happened was I went on the internet at my job. You know, I had finished working, and somehow I go on the internet see what's going on, and I was like, "Oh, wait a minute, the new Cyborg Zero Zero Nine." And I got to episode thirty-eight, which was called the Black Ghost, and they explained the whole origin of how Professor Gilmore started working with the Black Ghost. And the first generation cyborgs were 001 to 4. And I was really amazed. And then that story went into episode 1 of 009, The Birth, when Joe woke up. And I was impressed. I do have the 79 series, the 52 episodes, which I enjoy very much. And raw Japanese, but hey. Yeah, recently, when I was in Japan, I just saw Rescue Force from Takara. I kind of like that. In fact, when Mike gets back from Japan, I may ask for a few episodes. And that show with the two cell phones fighting, I got a kick out of that I liked. That was weird. It started when we were there. That just started. I saw there, these cell phones have superpowers. Yeah, and it was like weird, but damn, I like that. Of course, I saw the, the new Kamen Rider. Ultraman Nexus was on, which can't go wrong. And then it, my hotel was running the new Macross. Yeah, yeah, but I wasn't, no, my, your hotel's running my cross, mine was running the new Gundam. Right. So I seen the new Gundam, yeah. On the subject of that, can you tell us what anime series are you watching currently, uh, if any? I don't know if watching would be picking up DVD or watching something over the air, but I just finished up the first, I guess, three discs for Moonlight Mile and just found out that supposedly the license holder pulled it back as well as Helsing. But other than that, I haven't really watched or paid attention to stuff on TV except maybe for Code Geass from time to time on Adult Swim. Is there anything you're watching, not necessarily on TV, but on the internet or any of... The Venture Brothers, of course, on the internet. It varies. It all depends on time and mood because I work weird hours. I actually work in television. Oh, okay. Strangely enough, I retired, but right now, what am I watching? I'm not watching anything current. I think the only thing... Old and I'm watching it is thanks to Kevin eating on subtitle and loving and enjoying the show. The other one I'm starting to watch, I just finally found all the tapes. I'm starting to watch Panzer Will Galleon again because I love the designs. Giant robots that look like centurions and everything else. Neat theme song. You watched something last night. Oh, what was that one? Uh, well, the new Slayers. We watched the, Yeah, but we were sitting there sipping and drinking, watching. But Slayers came out. The new Slayers. Old Slayers I like, and the new one I like a lot. And there's the newest one that you show me about the chocolate. Oh, uh, what the? Antique Chocolate's bakery? illegal, but they make a bootleg version of chocolate or something. Kind of unique. Yeah. Yeah, we, watch that yeah, yeah, we have to. That's, yes. that's really good. That's yeah. Well, I try at least to download the first episode of anything new comes out and make a judgment call from there. Either I like it or I don't like it. But I am watching Slayers, Macross, Frontier. Allison and, and Lily, I think it is. Allison and That's Lily, very yeah. good. But I've always been a big fanatic about planes anyhow. <laughs> I like the flight stuff. Basically, I try to reserve judgment for actually seeing it. I don't judge by just the anime alone. I like if the story's good. Because I hate the character designs for Votum, but I love the mecha work. And the story is so tight, you just have to love the story. Are you watching anyhow. the new Votoms? Yes. Pulse and Files, excellent stuff. got to get that from you. Mm-hmm. Watch that. Yeah. Well, I'm watching on the internet where the, the common writer, kind of strange, this one involved a train and you got all these Deno. different... Deno. Yeah, all these, and then the other one where they're in two different time periods. Yeah, that's and, yeah. yeah, I'm like, whoa, wait a minute. And I did watch the common writer Paradise Lost movie. Yeah. 
which I was like really impressed. I was like, okay. But yeah, that's about the newest stuff I've been watching on the internet. I do catch some of the old stuff, like somebody had put a Rainbow Sentai Robin on the internet episode. Yeah, that's it for me. I would say that at our anime meeting, thanks to Jim, Sydney, and Kevin, everybody brings tapes, a video, anything, and he brings a music video. His music videos, the ones you did on like Godzilla, them are good. So anything everybody brings to the meeting is like fair game. In fact, a couple of times our meeting, we've even ran 16 millimeter. We ran the original 1960 Baron Munchausen movie, which most people don't know about. In fact, one meeting, we even ran two episodes of the old Clayton Moore Lone Ranger, and everybody loved it. Yeah. Yeah. I do have the episodes, the animated Lone Ranger. If you have the original 1960s from UPA... From UPA, not the ones the Filmation did. The UPA ones are not available on the video no, whatsoever. The yeah, the animated ones. Those are the ones. Yeah, they were. The, it was two separate. Filmation did a batch. I remember my mom leaving me a note when she saw it. No, the Zorro ones I remember. But when Filmation did the Lone Ranger, I remember coming home and my mom. No, this was the 80s. Filmation did the 1980 version of Lone Ranger. I came home from work one day. My mom left a note on the table. Saw Lone Ranger. I couldn't believe it. William Conrad's the voice, the guy that played Cannon. She guessed the voice before I did. Yeah, because she knew. But the original 1960s Lone Ranger cartoons are not available. I know the firm that sells the animated cells off of them, but they ain't going cheap. But the filmation versions you can find in any store. We try to find hard stuff to show, stuff that's not... Jim usually comes up with something that's not... We don't get to see. Kevin always comes up with something new. Or Luke. Luke just told us (laughs) next meeting. Somebody's got a subtitle, the uh, Super Deformed World of Going to Guy subtitle. I said, good, good. Because I'm eating, everybody likes Going to Guy. Yeah. Good night. It seems like there's a lot of emotion attached to the series Votoms for you guys. I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on that and how you came to watch uh, that. Love the love the Mac guy. In fact, one time recently we had the episodes coming in on D2 format in Japanese that had to get made to Digi Beta. And the one thing I remember was I had first seen it in the 80s. And I'm sitting there working in my booth, running the tapes. I'm singing the theme along. And my supervisor at the time came in and thought I was nuts. It was like, what, you can read Japanese? It's like, no, I saw this show 20 years ago. Actually, that was Keith Sewell had brought in like all these different songs translated and Keith started singing it bad and John Carr took it and said, no, that's not how you do it. This is how you do it. And he really blasted out the opening theme. One show I got, I got to thank uh, John Carr. Was, John Carr is an, uh, another old anime fan. He gave me the, the complete set of Briger, which I love. Untouchables in Space. Briger. And the other one I've been starting to watch a little bit more. I hadn't like I said, going through tapes to find, I'm starting to rewatch my old episodes of Ninja Warrior Tobakage. Very nice theme song. Votums, okay. Votums was, I'm sorry about that. Boy, get off the track. For a while in Philadelphia, we were getting an international channel, and they were running Votums in English subtitles. It used to come on 8.30, 9 o'clock at night. I had first seen the series. Somebody had gave me the first two episodes, and I said, I like it. I like the theme. The robots are neat. Where can I get more? And then I started finding more and more about it. And then I heard about the guy, Tim Edgard, who's a big Votums fan. And I got the Votums Watcher guy. And I said, that is what I want. And I said, I just like the show. It's beautifully done. I thought the character designs were interesting. I like Chirico's, uh, that gun he carries reminds me of the old Western guns. He's actually modeled after Steve McQueen, I understand. The mayor's leg of wanted dead or alive. Yeah. We've shown a, a few of the movies. Big Battle, the Badger, was it? The Hydra Genius. I remember one of the... 
We've noticed that Otakon throughout the weekend, they've actually been scheduling quite a bit of Otoms yes. throughout the weekend. Yeah, one of the old um, across comic artists, Mike Lee, who lived near me, he was a big Votoms fan. We used to come over to the house. We used to sit down, him and I and a couple other guys, we'd sit down and we watch Votoms, or we have, let's see, we watch Votoms, Grandizer. Somebody was sent out for food. We have an all-night session, just sit there watching Japanese anime. Or somebody said, I'll throw in a couple of Republic cereals, you know, get a little kick-ass and just sit back and watch Rocket Man and whatnot. I said, man, this is good stuff. I can Boss Smasher. That was, yeah, we did that at a, one, I did that as a, not as a joke. I said, let me try this. So I ran the original Republic cereal, Spy Smasher, the meeting. Everybody loved it because they were surprised how violent those cereals were. Uh, another one I ran was the Spider. First episode, the Spider's, oh, yeah. yeah, the first episode. Ooh. He's at a bus terminal shooting and killing at least 30 henchmen because they're going to plant a bomb in a bus terminal. It's like, the kids watched this in the 30s and 40s. This is action. This stuff was good. Who can tell me what Votom stands for? I remember it because it was on the toys. Yeah. Vertical one-man tank for offensive maneuvers or very obnoxious taggers, out-of-sight murder service. And the other show I loved, Metal Link. Yes. Armor Felt Hunter sorry Metal Link. Felt sorry for those. Oh, what a shame. Well, like I said, the character design initially had turned me off, but somebody was showing some of it at a convention. And like anybody else, it's, it's cartoons, so you all gather around and watch what's going on. Then I got to look at the mecha, and it seemed like, wow, that's very realistic. You could actually build something like that. And it was the one scene where he's fighting in the arena. Yeah. Oh, all yeah. All right. And the first thing that really got me was, like in all the other previous mecha shows, you always see the robot punch with its fist, and you know, it's all like a human does. Well, I could see it doing that, but that's not going to really do much. With Votoms, they used the shell yeah. for the impact, or they used the spike. That yeah. made so oh. much sense. It's like, that would work more than just hitting it with the arm of the robot. It's, you know, the machine is still like a real military machine. It's for killing, period. It's not nice. It's not pretty. It's good. It's also vulnerable. Oh, the other thing. If I could ever find it, I wouldn't mind getting it. There was in a magazine a giant Votums that stood about that high. Oh, the 160. The 160. I guess this is going to be G-rated, but I'll say it. Big enough to be breastfed. I would not mind having it. No, no, because 160, they made a 1.6 G.I. Joe scale. Because I saw one on, you, what was the one you and I saw in Japan was one on Gundam. And I said, what did you tell me? Now you can have the son you never had. There's a 120. Oh. 1.6 is large enough that... If you're going to take it home, you might as well just buy another seat on the airline. Yeah, it could take up the seat. Put him in a seat belt, leave him alone, just let him sit there and hold his beam rifle. Right, don't disturb him. Stuart, he doesn't need to go to the bathroom. <laughs> Put a drink. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Take his peanuts. Take, yeah. Oh, God, I would love to see that. Well, you know, I like the theme song. Man, I love the theme song. And I see, I think I had bought like a couple cassettes at the Oricon when I first came. And I enjoyed it. I was like, wow, this show is great. I think I got up to like the Jungle Wars. Where yeah. Cumin Wars. And I was like, oh my God, this is good. But I had got the rest of it. I, I like the show. Well, um, I could stay here and probably talk to you all night, but I guess there's any number of things that you might otherwise have to do. But I'd like to thank all of you. Well, I, I have nothing to do either. I just don't want to overstay my welcome. But, yeah, we can definitely do this again sometime. If you have any parting comments or things to say for everyone out there listening, uh, let's hear them. Thoughts, anything you want. Well, anime has been definitely interesting. I've made a lot of friends through it. Actually got to explore 
many interesting places, meet interesting people, and not get killed by them. It's been quite a journey. In fact, I remember... Nah, I won't mention that one. (laughs) It basically dealt with how I originally came down to Philly, and I'm not going to mention that one. Just just so you know, our show is 18+, plus, so you can say whatever you want. No, it involves some people who are still alive who probably would turn around and try and sue. Let's just say I originally came down to Philly to do something that would have been really nasty, but in the end I decided not to because to do it would have been incredibly stupid. I decided not to do it. It was basically to try and stop Bill from showing a certain movie. Like the old gangsters of Prohibition. You're not standing on my territory. Or like East-West Rap Wars. So, you know, I met a lot of people. I'm glad I did. It's been a fun ride. I still count a lot of them as friends. And for me, all I can say is, uh, I guess I'm one of those, I'm kind of like the rare anime fan, to go to Japan because I'm, I don't know how I put it, I can't say I'm an MMA fan first. I'm also a fan of railroads and trains. So when I go to Japan, I constantly ride the railroad subway system, having worked within the mass transit industry. That was another thing that was kind of interesting. At the time, Kawasaki was building our subway cars. I got to talk to a lot of the Japanese, and they would leave their newspapers. And I used to pick the newspapers up in the shop, and i see. I think at the time, we were getting Baldios was on, and I would translate. And the guy said, oh, you know about Baldiosu. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My mom had gone to Japan years ago, and I remember telling her about TV shows over there. And she looked, oh, what she said, she came back, she said, yeah, you were right. There was a lot of stuff on there. And again, 8081, when we were getting the streetcars and subway cars from Kawasaki, I told guys about that. And when the guys came back, he says, Bill, thanks to you, I bought an Ultraman pants for my little boys, and I would have never known it. And the idea of, I go over there as a twofold, hit the hobby shops for trains, hit the anime shops. Just sit back, relax, watch TV, travel with these guys and have a blast. It's almost like a second home. We uh, just have a great time. It's been fun. I look forward to it. Made a lot of fans. I'm amazed at the people that, like that one guy said, they enjoy hearing me talk about classic anime and regular anime. It's like I'm just a fan passing on information and uh, a TV show or something you either heard of, you never heard of, or you've never seen. I mean, some of these young fans, are, I would say probably, uh, you ask them, has any of you seen Future Police Yarasha Man. Have you ever heard of Jet Mouse? Have you ever heard of uh, Super Jetter? You know, I can understand. You know, I know, no. I think the average fan's going to say, I've heard of Godzilla, Ultraman, Lupin, Astro Boy. Marine Boy is going to be like that gray area. Oh. Mako Go and Macross. So I think one Otokon I came down, there was a lot of people saying, I'd like to know more about the older shows that what I don't know that came on before Dragon Ball. And the guy said, Yeah, because they said they had one old timers panel. I think it was there on a Friday before we arrived. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they were talking. He said, "No, the guys that normally know these shows had not arrived." And he said, "I asked him, said, what would have happened?" He said, "Oh, the oldest show that they knew was Dragon Ball Z." I said, "Oh Lord, we should have taken them back to the old black and white stuff." And well, you know what's funny about that? One girl started. I was there at the night of that panel when they were talking about it. We panel called Old School Anime. And this first word came out of that too. mouth was Sailor Moon, Dragon Ball Z. I'm sitting there, I say, uh, excuse me. And the guy who wearing the Space Ghost costume, he's like, yes, the gentleman in front. I say, what about Eighth Man, Astro Boy, and Prince Planet? And people, and lady, and she like. I was actually in the crowd for that panel. That was how I first knew to talk to you at some and point. And I was like, tell her, and, and then one girl was like, you mean Sailor Moon and not old school? 
And the, and this woman left with me, and she was laughing because she said, "Yeah, I remember the old show too." And that same night, I went past one of the viewing rooms, and they were running Cyball 009, and girl Pete was sitting there scratching their head because they were running in Japanese the color episode. And the girl said, "This don't look like the cartoon on Cartoon Network." And I went in there and started explaining the episode and everything. I knew I had crowd people around. For the rest of the night. So. I got a small antidote like that. I was at a creation convention, and there's a dealer selling live-action Japanese shows, the Sentai shows, all right? And he's showing an original episode of the show that became Power Rangers. And you get these two younger guys go up and see this on the TV. And one guy turns to the other guy and goes, oh, look, it's a Japanese ripoff of Power Rangers. I, and I couldn't say anything. It just, it just stunned me. That It's like, wow, the ignorance there was just amazing. <laughs> no, it will it, never just, end. Some people you just will never convince that maybe the other is the ripoff. <laughs> and not so as a ripoff, but it's just say made to fit the American audience or what corporate thinks is the American audience. And to touch back on one other thing, for people who listen to this, I would recommend that if you like Sentai teams, do find Jetman. Oh, yeah. Jetman was great. Yeah, Jetman, yes, it's a, it's like an homage parody of Gotcha Man, and the robots really reminded me a lot of Votons. Yeah. We pulled the sword out the first thing I said, oh, I thought you were saying the cup noodle monster reminded you of Votoms. I think another Sentai show where we recommend... If you're getting into it, and one of the early shows, one was the first one I had seen, and I luckily I got the whole episode, Battle Fever J. That was the first one that featured the giant robot. That's where it actually started at. Also, before that, watch Go Ranger, because that used to be on TV in the Jersey, New York area, and in the West Coast. And that was a very well done show. All right, well, I'd like to thank uh, all of you very, very much for your time once again. I'm Daryl Surratt signing off from Otakon 2008. I'd like to thank Jim, Bill, Kevin, and Sydney, and Mike for standing motionless with his uh, recorder.